You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Maps. Now, if you haven't had the opportunity to get Onyx Maps on your phone, you need to get Onyx Maps on your phone, and I'm going to tell you why. Number one, I am the kind of guy who likes to know where I'm at at all times, and I like to do a lot of running and gunning. So there's times where access is very important for me, knowing where I was at, knowing how to get to a specific location, especially in the dark of morning or night, getting in and getting out. And the best part for me is that I have GPS on my phone and Onyx allows you to leave basically breadcrumbs uh, and leave a trail or your access routes on your phone, save those access routes, and then use your GPS going in and out of your tree stand locations every single day. And it's awesome because you won't get lost in the dark. And I use that so much, that little portion in itself, so much throughout the season that uh, it's probably the most useful function of that app. Now, you can also leave waypoints like where your trail cameras are at, where your tree stands are at, where you see scrapes and rubs or marking trailheads or campsites. This is the perfect app for a do-it-yourself hunter. I mean, really for all hunters, because it allows you to journal your properties that you hunt, right? And uh, the more information you have, the more successful you will be on a yearly basis because you keep gathering data and gathering data and gathering data. And soon you'll see trends in that data and those trends will lead you to hunting more efficiently and becoming more successful, in my opinion. So go to Onyx or wherever you download your apps, pick up Onyx, and you can use the discount code NATION20, N-A-T-I-O-N 20, and save 20% off for first-time users. Onyx Maps. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Kyle Hedges here again. Frank Loncarriage. Hey, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the use of prescribed fire um, for a variety of things, not just for uh, certain animals, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. A target species maybe you're managing on your farm, but uh, maybe for target vegetation that may be for a target animal, sometimes target vegetation that you're trying to get yeah. rid of. 
an invasive, um, something that's crowding out, maybe not truly uh, an invasive, but just a, a different species, an exotic species that's that's crowding out, um, your desired species. Mm -hmm. There's there's just a lots of different reasons to use prescribed fire. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. And, and the cool thing about fire is, is it is is so dynamic. You can use it in various seasons of the year and various conditions within a day. So you're, the way you apply fire within a day can impact what you want to get done. And we want to talk about those things because it really is a dynamic tool that can be used for a lot of purposes for habitat management. We use fire routinely in our jobs. We use fire routinely um, in our, on our private property too. So it's, uh, it's something that Kyle and I are intimately familiar with. We, we utilize it in our jobs. We've got training. Um, we know how to apply it and we think it's important that more people that really want to use fire have the ability to use it and we want to talk about that. Absolutely. And, and one of the glories of fire is it, it's one of the most cost-effective management treatments a person can ever use on their property. You can yeah. cover so many more acres with one fire than you ever could with with a tractor and a brush yeah. hog or a tractor and a disc and and that's costing you fuel it's costing you time right um and in a lot of cases you're not going to get the effect that you want anyway right yeah fire um, is super effective and and it's also one of those things that that is many you know if you're if you're anywhere um Almost anywhere in North America, there's places where fire wasn't very important, but there's a, a lot of places in North America where fire played a tremendous part in determining the, the vegetation and the species that are, that are native to those landscapes. In a lot of places, our species that we're most interested in and the plants that, that we want to preserve are fire adapted or they, or they can at least thrive in fire or at least neutral to fire. In a lot of places, it's been taken out, and, and, and for some, in some cases, with negative, really negative effects. And so fire is important in North America. It's important to our landscapes, and it's really important to a lot of the things that we as land managers and hunters like to enjoy. Absolutely. And if we want to get, you know, kind of philosophical about all of this, um, going a step further, you know, fire is a natural process on the landscape. Um, a tractor and a brush hog isn't. Now, no. Right. Uh, now, we use those on our own properties. Now, we're not sitting here bad-mouthing anybody that's ever been on a tractor and a brush hog. There's times that you need to do that. Yep. But but fire is a natural process. So, you know, one of Land and Legacy's uh, themes, of course, is, is working with the land, right? Mm -hmm. and, and working with Mother Nature here and, and not fighting the system and, and trying to use natural processes and natural community management to to succeed and and to have native plants and stuff that the whether it's you know plants that the deer prefer to eat or or structure that the quail prefer to live in or, or whatever the combination is so fire is a very natural process it was a historical process that these all these landscapes uh, uh, evolved with to, to some degree for the right. most part right um our, especially in missouri our timber landscapes had fire in them yeah um, only yeah only different the, intervals sure sure only the more the most protected northern slopes the rocky cliffs things like that the wet draws probably didn't routinely see fire they probably saw fire at some point when it was extreme drought 
but not routinely. The rest of Missouri um, and most of the Midwest saw fire on a routine interval, um, and it was it was periodic. It was it was a fire. It was fire returned to the same landscapes, and over time, the plants and animals that were that could adapt to fire are the ones that thrived there. Yeah, there's a reason that the Sandhills of Nebraska are, are still here, and they're still, you know, that mixed grass prairie across a, a vast region of Nebraska it was because of fire. Yeah, now, there's, there's some a, of that's threatened anymore. Yeah, absolutely. There's places uh, where you have you see that a lot in the Smoky Hills of Kansas too, and in the Red Hills of Kansas where um, big time deer hunting is starting to, to, to take off, and, and and you see red cedar encroachment. Those eastern red cedars weren't there, and they shouldn't be there. They're causing a lot of problems with native wildlife. They're causing a lot of problems with using water. Water in these arid landscapes like that is very, very important. And these eastern red cedars soak up a lot of water, and they're there because fire has been removed from the landscape. Ironically, we are traveling through Nebraska right now, and we're looking out the window, and mm-hmm. it about makes me want to throw up because there's a bunch of grasslands kind of dissected by crop right through here, yep. and there is cedar encroachment everywhere. Yeah, cedars it, everywhere. The and green death is invading. Yeah, and, and they, they cause, you know, a, a lot of problems for the native species, uh, like game bird species. They, they provide perches for raptors they provide escape places for raccoons and possums that wouldn't normally have places to hide they crowd out grassland landscapes uh, reduce usable space all kinds of problems with these with these eastern red cedars um, not only in Missouri but Nebraska and, and and Kansas and what kept those cedars off the landscape were were fires because fires or cedars, excuse me, do not do well with fires. They do not re-sprout after fire, so a fire will kill a cedar tree, and it won't re-sprout. So fire and, and, and cedars don't mix. In an area where cedars fire has been removed, cedars are encroaching. Yep, so we're not going to talk about uh, fire line prep and those kind of things. Uh, uh, Matt and Adam did a couple uh, prescribed fire podcasts back uh I believe January of 2018 or so. I flipped back through the archives and to kind of see and, and see what they've done because we wanted to talk about this a little more in depth. And they talked about some fire line construction and some things to do. So, so we're not going to really address that. If you want to flip back through and, and listen to that, if you want more details on on how to do some fire line stuff, this is going to be more about fire effects um, and and really goals and objectives and, and trying to meet those through through the use of fire for our habitat and and, and the landscape that we're working on um, let's start out uh, Frank with you know what about some some use of fire for prepping sites uh, lots of times at, at our jobs we're using fire to prepare the landscape maybe for a herbicide treatment mm-hmm. um, for fighting invasives or or just an exotic grass that, uh, you know, maybe is kind of crowding out what we want. So Yeah, yeah. for, for instance, where, where we're out in southwest Missouri, we have a real problem with tall fescue in, invading our, our prairies or our management land, our management conservation areas, places that we, that we want to keep fescue out and manage for 
bobwhite quail or, or whatever other species we're interested in. The fescue can be a real problem. And so we utilize fire to attack fescue, and we utilize it in a couple of different ways. One of the ways that we, we attack fescue is with herbicide, and we can use fire to prep that to make our herbicide more effective. Yeah, so we, you know, if we're dealing with fescue, it doesn't grow, it's not going to grow waist high. Right. Um, the heads might, but, but the leaf material isn't. But a lot of our warm season grasses, if it's invading into our warm season grasses, plantings, or, or native prairie, um, that fescue's down low underneath. And, mm-hmm. and these warm season grasses are tall, sometimes up to your stomach, chest, tall. And, and we're not going to get a very good herbicide application. We're not, not going to get the chemical down yeah, the, the, to the fescue like we need it. Um, the the yeah, the chemical just will settle onto the dormant stems of the native warm season grass and not penetrate yeah. into the fescue where we want to kill it. And remember, we're dealing with two different growth patterns. Warm season grass, by its name, grows during the warm season, so about mid-April through about the middle part of October, sometimes early November, uh, is its growth curve. It's really starting to, to, to really kind of go downhill in, in late October. Fescue, on the other hand, sort of has two peaks. It starts growing in our part of the country around late March, really gets kicked in about mid to late March, grows well through about the last part of June or to July, kind of senesces a little bit, kind of goes dormant, and then pops up again And when it cools off in the fall, late September through December sometimes when it's warm. So it has these two peaks, has these two humps. So two different two different growth seasons, which is beneficial for us as, as grassland managers. Yeah, so w- we can uh, attack that. Um, use it its growth timing and, and the warm season growth timing to attack it in the fall with herbicide. So what we'll do, maybe if we want to prep a site instead of just mowing it, uh, using the fuel and spending the time to do that, we might we might burn a field that we we need to spray for fescue, burn it in September, uh, and allow that the, the warm season's pretty much done. You get mm-hmm. a slight regrowth, but not much. Right. Um, and that fescue will just go crazy, and that's fine. We want yep. it. We, we're really encouraging this fall growth. And then the first frost, we just got to wait for the first frost. And all of those warm season plants and almost all those forbs, they immediately shut down. Yep. I mean, honestly, you can go out the day after the first frost and spray your fescue with glyphosate. Even though there's still some color in some of those warm season plants and, and forbs, they are automatically shut down after that first yep. frost. You want to be smart about when you're spraying this fescue. If it's 35 degrees, you're not going to get the effect. You know, you right. want you want a frost, but then after a frost, sometimes it's a week, two weeks. Maybe it'll be sometime in November, but we'll get some of those days that are back up to, you know, 50-plus degrees, and that fescue is real active, and, and we can yep. really knock it down yep. with glyphosate. Yeah, we can knock it down because we've removed a lot of that competition of the warm-season grass. And you can also do the same thing in the spring. Right, you can start burning a warm season grass field in say early March, for instance, and then the fescue will, will shoot up and then you've got a little bit you've got to be careful then. You know, you've got a window there before while you've got the fescue actively growing before your warm season. So late March, early April, you can really knock that that fescue back and then it's amazing. Once you do that, you release the forbs that are dormant in the ground there in the soil bank and in the seed bank or the root bank in the seed bank excuse me and your warm season grasses will just take off because they you remove that 
fescue competition, which is also has some allelopathic properties too. Yep, and another strategy we've used quite a bit is uh, just burning and uh, again, still fighting fescue. So you can you can go real late spring. Yep. So yep. you wait if you burn fescue when it's just starting to grow. You know, it's just got a couple inches of growth. You just invigorated that yep. stuff, and it's going to take off. Same way with warm season. If you burn it when it's got its first few inches of new growth, it's really going to explode, right? Well, you can wait and it because your warm seasons are going to carry your fire where mm-hmm. there's fescues encroaching. And, you know, in our part of the state, I've burned in, in May even. Mm-hmm. And you wait, yep. so you've got fescue that's maybe a good 10, 12 inches tall. It's really thinking it's doing something. And the warm season is just starting to come on, so I'm yep. not hurting it. And I run a fire through there and just smash yeah, that, yeah. You that can fescue. Just, you can just destroy it. And those conditions are great because they they will just really smoke the fescue and your burning conditions tend to be in higher humidities temperatures are kind of starting to warm up a little bit so you don't get this extreme fire behavior that you would when everything's dormant and everything's brown it it really makes for safer burning conditions if you're not as experienced or if you don't have a huge crew it really you're using that you're using your temperature and humidity conditions to control your fire and also smoke your fescue at the same time. Yep, absolutely. Now, some of you are thinking, well, then why don't you just always do that? Why do you bother even spraying it in the fall? Well, the burning it like that, that works, but it's it's more temporary. I'm going to get yeah. a, more years of control by doing the fall because we've got two growth periods. So my warm season's going to take off, and see, everything's going to be great for that summer. But that fall, if I, if I didn't do a chemical application, I just did a late spring burn. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have some fescue fight its way back into the system, It's right? going to fight its way. Plus, you're going to have seeds that yeah. were in the soil, the fescue seeds that were in the soil, that will germinate now and grow in the fall period. So, And the yeah. fire won't kill them because they're deep enough in the soil. So you'll need to be able to... Yeah. So you'll, you'll really want to use that herbicide application in the fall. Yeah, and, and going back to that, you know, so it would just depend on how, how heavy infestation you had. But we're just giving you an example. Um, uh, along those lines, you know, he's talking about the seeds in the soil. Lots of times we'll spike our, our fall treatment, our glyphosate. We'll spike it with a little plateau or something, and we'll get a little more residual control that next right. spring that will keep those fescue seeds from germinating or, yeah, or they, they do and, and then they you know expire they they die so uh, we get a little residual out of it but that's just one example you can do the same thing with ceresa so ceresa seeds are hardened and they love fire fire releases them causes them to germinate so we can look at a couple options for ceresa which is a, an issue across the midwest yeah, uh, across yeah. Yeah. Way too much of the country, yeah. unfortunately. Cerecia lespides, it was brought in for a host of reasons, for erosion control, for even wildlife food. And back in the 50s and 60s, they thought it, you know, people thought it was going to be good wildlife food and cover. Well, it turns out to be highly invasive, very aggressive, produces a ton of seed, can, can take over a grassland in short order, becomes way too thick for most of our grassland species to to navigate it. Quail will eat the seed, they can't digest it, so it's no good, just passes through their digestive system so they don't get any nutrients out of it. It's just just a pretty terrible plant to have on on the landscape. 
Yeah, so we can go into a system where, um, you know, maybe we want to burn it. We've got a, a cerise issue, and, and you can burn it, do an August burn, keep it from going to seed. Yep, keep it from going that, to seed. That's one control tactic. What you've done is you've, you've, you've reduced the seed for that year. You've bought yourself some time. You've killed the mature plants. You've top-killed them anyway. They're not producing seed, but you haven't killed that plant. Remember that. You haven't killed it. You've top-killed it. You haven't root-killed it. You at least kept it from going seed, so you may buy yourself some time with that. Yeah, and and in most cases, you know, unless it's a brand-new planting and, hey, this is the first cerise you've seen, which in that case, by golly, you better stay on top of it because yep. you don't want this stuff getting established. But a lot of cases, we're dealing with cerise in fields that's been there for several years, um, unfortunately. So we've got seed in the ground, yep. a seed bank, and this stuff can stay in the ground. Nobody even knows. But yeah, we know 50-plus yeah. years yeah, this can stay viable. Yep. Um, so another strategy, you know, with fire and cerises is, is do the opposite. I'll burn it in the spring sometime because I want to cause all those seeds to germinate. I'm forcing them to germinate. I want to make the cerise three times as thick yes. as it is. And you would think, what is he doing that? Yeah, well, what's that's this idiot doing. <laughs> and I think yeah. that all the time. Well, yeah. When the, I said, what? What are you doing? <laughs> so, you know, if I'm going to do that, I know I'm doing it on purpose to cause all this germination because I'm going to follow up and spray it in July or August. That's right. So, I want. I'm trying to use up some of this seed bank. Um, so, so sometimes we we'll use that strategy. Now, you got to follow up. You, you know, you can't, well, you I'm going to do this burn, and I, I thought I might spray, but I got busy, and, well, yep. now you're just shooting yourself yeah, in the foot. Yeah, you must so. spray it. You <laughs> must spray it. If, if that's what you're, you need to follow through with those plans. But there's just a couple examples of where we can use fire to uh, to really manipulate the, to, to give us easier spraying conditions or, or, you know, to get to our target plant. A lot of thistles, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're, uh, biennial plant. They have a rosette the first year and the second year that they actually make the thistle. Well, so anytime you burn in that two-year cycle, you just screwed that up. Mm-hmm. So um, where stuff is fairly regularly burned, you typically won't ever see thistle problems. Yeah. Um, anyway, just in the, you know, lots of different plants, lots of different timing of fire that you can you can get something out of. So. You really need to go into burning and knowing what your target is yeah. or, or what your goals are and, and then really understanding some of the fire effects. Yeah. So let's let's switch gears. So we've talked about burning for invasive species. Let's talk about burning for, let's say we don't have an invasive problem. We've got a property that we want to manage and that we want to manage for uh, a certain um habitat condition we want to have more forbs for for a host of species from white-tailed deer down to wild turkeys down to songbirds we want more forbs we want to set back some some brushy control we we want to do some brush some brush control we want to set back some some of our native warm season grasses if they've got too thick so let's 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 switch gears and talk about how we can use fire to manage the native species on our property so that they can have the best chance of thriving. You bet. And the, and the first part, I'm, excuse me, the, no, first, the first thing I want to do, let's talk about what our bread and butter is. Let's talk about bobwhite quail in landscapes that have native grasses and forbs. That's where we have got management experience, we have got research experience. Let's talk about that first. 
Okay, yep, and that, that creates an interesting um, kind of debacle, <laughs> kind of a competing interest that, that we're going to get to here yeah. with, with fire. So um, a lot of the things that, that you just mentioned, so burning, trying to get rid of thick, overly thick, warm season grass. Right. Um, woody control, so mm-hmm. be it brush control or tree sprouts or whatever, and increase in forbs. Mm-hmm. All three of those things can be done with a late summer, early fall burn. Right. Right. Um, interestingly, though, quail research shows, and this makes sense, that if we do those types of burns, those time that time of year, you've just displaced quail out of whatever unit or units or however many acres, hundreds of acres you just burned. They can't live there, not only the fall, but the winter either. So, Yeah, yeah we've just made it black. We've just taken away the cover that they were using. So you've got a, a you know a brood of quail that, it, that in the fall forms into a, a covey unit and it's living in a warm season grass or a native prairie or some kind of an old field situation that you want to, it's got a you know, shrubby, shrubby cover issue or, or, or you want to increase the diversity. So you go in there and burn it. Well, just know that that covey then is going to have to be displaced. So you're moving you're displacing that covey into a new home range because they, they really can't live there because you've taken all the cover away. And research shows that as you do that, you increase the mortality of that particular covey of quail. You're going to see a higher mortality rate of those individuals because they are moving to an area that's unfamiliar. And, be, and through that movement, they're exposing themselves to more predators. Yep, so so all these things have to be weighed into it. Yep. So can we get the effects we need? What can we do to mitigate for that? Um, if I'm spe- specifically managing for quail, and I say, man, uh, you know, Frank and I both use late summer and, and fall burns at, at mm-hmm. our work for different purposes. Right, different reasons. And some of those are because quail aren't the primary thing that we're worried about on that particular place. What if... If it's a native prairie that we're managing for natural community, bobwhite quail aren't the primary thing we're managing for. We're managing for that community. And in that community at that particular time, a fall or late summer fire is warranted. We're going to have to be okay with potentially some some quail mortality in that unit. The whole covey's not going to disappear. We're not going to wipe them out. We're just going to have to be... on. We're just going to have to accept that we may lose a bird or two doing that. Yep. If we're on an area that we're trying to maximize quail, it's kind of a different ball game. We yeah. say, hey, all right, we got grass that's too thick. Well, we've got radio collar data that shows it doesn't matter. Um, thick grass does matter, but if we burn in the spring or the previous fall, you know, typically you burn in the fall to reduce grass density. Spring, everyone will tell you it's going to make the grass thicker. Well, we have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of data points from five years of radio collared quail that proves the quail don't care. They will use a spring burn to raise their brood just the same as last fall's burn. They don't care. They happily use both of these. So So, just just quickly, then you can continue your point. So the reason we may burn it in the fall is we're saying, okay, we want to burn this unit in the fall because we want more forbs to have better brood cover, have better brood conditions. What the quail radios are showing us 
is that they will use a spring burn as well as the fall. Yeah. So we may not be getting the the brood we, we may not be favoring brood conditions by burning in the fall. We could just wait and do it in the spring instead and still have the and still have the same amount of quail use. And one of the benefits of burning in the spring then is you're you have a, a smaller time between green up. So if you burn in the spring, a couple weeks later you start getting green up and you start getting the cover back for the quail rather than burning in the fall and having an entire winter devoid of cover in that particular unit. Yeah, so we've reduced that overwinter mortality. So we go into the spring with more breeders, hopefully. Yep. Um, and we do a spring burn. And yeah, I'll admit that a, an August burn or September burn does create more forbs. But the quail radio callers are telling us there's enough out there with a spring burn for them to do what they need to do. So, um, you know, these are the kind of things people need to think about. Yeah. Uh, if, 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 what if I had all those situations? So I had thick grass. I want more forbs. We just talked about it. Um, well, the thick grass, we just explained that that's irrelevant now for quail. We can do a spring burn and still get the same quail use. But the woody control was another one. Yeah. We get, we do get better woody control with a late summer, early fall burn than we do um, with a, with a spring burn, I'll admit right. it. Spring yeah. burn's going to top kill stuff. 99.9% um, of will stump sprout. Uh, an August or September burn, you're still going to get a lot of stump sprouting, but we'll have some complete mortality of mm -hmm. some of those. But but I can make an adjustment and say, hey, all right, I'm going to do something else for my woody in this issue. In this, because I want to burn in the spring. I want to favor quail. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm don't. i worried about overwinter mortality being increased with this with this late summer burn right so i'm going to do something different for my woody control i'll do some mechanical mm -hmm. treatment or some basal bark treatment so you know maybe it becomes a, a combination one two punch i instead of doing it all with fire maybe i can get the same results i just got to use a couple different yeah, techniques use some herbicide use some different techniques so so those are those are some things that you need to think about as a manager you need to you need to determine what you want to maximize now knowing that Everything is going to benefit at some point from a prescribed fire, but some things may not. Yeah. Some, some things may be in the short term harmed, or or, or in the short term may, may lose, and you've got to weigh those and determine what what's most important to you. and And there's no right or wrong. Nope. Absolutely not. There's no judgment, no right or wrong on all this. You just got to determine what your prescription calls for, what your management goal is and then utilize the tool of burning best fits how your goal that you want to reach. Yep. Do some research, understand this, understand the fire effects. Uh, the Forbes thing, let's say we want the Forbes. Well, guess what? I can burn in January and get the same Forb effect as if I burned in September. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The freezing and thawing of the root crowns of that warm season, it's going to damage some of those warm season clumps if mm -hmm. I'm trying to reduce thick grass. So there's maybe a compromise, right? Instead of waiting till spring burning, maybe I'm trying to promote pollinators a little more. I want more forbs, whatever. I need this to be showy, but I'm also worried about overwinter mortality for quail. Um, well, I say, hey, I'm just going to wait, and I'm going to do a winter burn. I'm mm -hmm. going to do a late winter burn. So at least now... I may, still may have a little bit increased mortality on quail, but it's not for six months, five months. Right, right. Now I'm down to a couple months. Then yeah. stuff's going to start greening up. So, yeah. so there's adjustments in there, but you need to understand how the plants react 
to fire um, and what it does to them. You know, the fire at that time in January does nothing to a clump of big blue stem or Indian no, grass. It just, you're just removing the, the vegetation from the, the previous year. You're not yeah. hurting the root. Yeah, you're just removing vegetation. The fire itself isn't doing anything, but it's the follow-up. It's that insulation, absolutely, that was providing the the root crown of that plant. Uh, it's gone, yep. and so now yep. the freezing and thawing of the of the ground and that root crown it damages it. So you have less vigor in that grass clump, and then guess what? Something's going to fill in the void, and it's going to be forbs. It's going to be annual weeds, whatever. It allows those seeds or those forbs some germination some room to germinate or some room to get a to get a foothold and you're going to see that response and it's it's really cool one of the cool things about our job is, is we can we can choose to manipulate the the land land that we manage based on what our particular goals are and, and I've I've had some burns that I burned in in um and it's really cool we have the fire line that's a that's maybe a a, a mid eight or a not a mid-April, but say an early April fire versus one that we did in September. And it's just so striking to see the six-foot-tall big blue stem in the April fire versus much reduced blue stem and a greater forb abundance in the September fire. Just You can just follow it. You can see right where the fire line was. It's striking. And that was all gained through the timing and use of fire, nothing else. Absolutely. And, you know, other species, we can, we can, maybe we're burning for, for deer, maybe we're burning for turkeys, maybe uh, it can be timber burns, it can be open field burns, mm-hmm. but by changing these, the plant diversity, by pl- changing the, the species present or the density of the species richness, the species density of of some of these plants, you know, if we can increase legumes, my goodness, the the increased uh, nutritional value for yeah. several species of wildlife, whether yeah. it's deer, birds, whatever, mm-hmm. um, we can do that with fire. Yep, absolutely. Um, we can do that in timber. We can do, I do fall burns in the timber. I do spring burns in the timber. It just depends on what my goals are. Right. Um, yeah, I know of I know of no other tool that we can use that is as dynamic. Now grazing, I will say grazing is is right up there, and for, we for grassland for grassland yeah. for grassland landscapes, and we use it in combination with fire. We use fire and grazing in combination, but it, but a tool that you can use on the same piece of ground, to, you can just change the day and the conditions in which you use that tool and get two different impacts. That's that's pretty amazing. And in so many different habitat types. I mean, glades. Yep. You glades, know, forest, woodland. Fire. Uh, forest, woodland, old fields, grasslands, even wetlands. I mean, it's it's endless. The applicability of fire is endless and, and the benefits we can get from it. Um, I don't know. We, uh, we covered uh, fire timing. We, we covered the fire timing in terms of what what kind of response you get with spring fire versus a summer fire versus a winter fire? We talked about its effect on quail. We talked about a lot of these sub, a lot of these species are fire adapted. Um, so let's talk about scale. One yeah. of those things with fire is scale. We have limited burn days, 
and we think a lot of times I know as a manager and I know as as a public lands manager when we're doing our accomplishments it looks a lot better if we've burned a thousand acres uh, over a two or three day period than maybe 200 acres but I guess the question is is that proper for the landscape is that the best thing to do is it best to to burn a 500 acre unit or maybe a couple of 50 acre units so let's talk about scale for a little bit well and and once again so it depends on what our objectives are right is our objective uh, hopefully for nobody should just be total number of acres burned because we we need a better objective than that unfortunately for some probably state and government federal agencies that may be sometimes yeah yeah it looks better if you think wow man you you guys burned three thousand acres this year well we burned three thousand acres but does that mean that we should have burned three thousand acres did we burn it at the right time did we use the appropriate prescription and that's also very important we haven't talked about prescription yet and we will in just a minute but talk about scale minute so yeah on the scale uh, what species are we talking Uh, if we're targeting quail burning you know, two, three hundred acre units at a time probably is not ideal. No. Um, that if we burn, let's say we've got a, a thousand acre property and we want to burn a third of it uh, each year maybe mm-hmm. uh, for quail and we just lop off the whole western third, here we go, and we light it up. Well, we've just wiped out any potential nesting in that western third until, you know, regrowth allows yeah, maybe by July, July or yep. so. So mm-hmm. there's... the We've just displaced those birds. You can't nest here. We've just we've just completely ran them off. So, you know, if we're burning for a for a bird that whose home range is you know 100 acres or less most of the time, um, we probably need to 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 dissect those down and kind of checkerboard it out as best we can. Yeah. So we can still burn that third, but let's don't burn. Let's don't break it up into thirds and burn one entire third. Let's break yeah. it up into smaller units. Maybe we'll have 10 units. Maybe we'll have 10 units. Now, yeah. that creates a lot more fire line prep. That creates a lot more time. However, you got to think about it. Is having more quail and better habitat my goal? Then, yeah, it may, 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 excuse me, it may be more work. It may have more time in the field prepping fire line and, prescribing, and doing the prescribed fire, but it's going to be worth it at the end. Right. Yep. yep. And if I'm, if it's other species, um, you know, just depends on what I'm after. There, I may have timber units, um, and for for deer, turkey, I don't, I don't mind a bigger burn unit. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, they're more mobile, right? They have yep. bigger home ranges. Uh, it's, it's not that big a deal. Yeah. So. And 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 if you burn at the at the time of year where you're not getting catastrophic fuel consumption, like, and and we we don't prescribe fires during that time. You're still leaving a lot of down woody material, a lot of down logs that turkeys can get up under and tuck a nest in, right? Yep, yep. that's right. Yeah, they're not gonna, they're not gonna need to use that that residual grass to make a nest bowl. They can just go in the timber under a deadfall or, or whatever. So, uh, just a lot of, lot of different um, opportunities or different different objectives for different species and, let's and say, the scale plays into all that right so let's say you've got a native prairie or you've got a prairie planting and pollinators are what you're worried about or you're worried about having more forbs out there greater forb diversity 
uh, a bigger burn scale may be more appropriate for you. Let's burn half of my property this year. Let's get a bunch of Forbes out there on the landscape. Let's provide a ton of food for these pollinators. Let's provide a ton of food for these these insects and these birds that are going to use these 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 um, these blooms. And you're really maximizing that over a larger scale, and that's perfectly acceptable. Uh, but again, it's whatever your goals are. Let me play devil's advocate here. You just spurred a thought. Um, so on. we've got places. Let's say we've just got a you know one open little grassland amongst hundreds of acres of timber and uh, hey every two or three years i'm going to burn that that field and and maybe it's a a very diverse lots of pollinators in it Mm -hmm. right but it's literally the only field in hundreds of acres of timber and this happens all across the united states people have properties just like this absolutely and they roll in and and maybe yep i'm going to burn this field once every three years going to burn it off well, the problem is there's a whole bunch of insects and different things that pollinators and stuff that are using that field. Mm-hmm. And the next nearest field may be who knows where. We just right. described it as hundreds of acres of timber all around it. So, you know, it seems like micromanaging, but what are we after? Again, what's the home range? If we're dealing with butterflies and, and, and little insects and, and their home range is, is this field... Mm-hmm. Whether it's five-acre field or a 50-acre field, I may need to cut it in half. Mm-hmm. i got to leave a little refugia. Mm-hmm. So some of these species, there's eggs in the ground. There's larvae in the ground from last year, whatever their strategy is. And then they emerge, right? Mm-hmm. So if if I'm burning it and they've already emerged, maybe a late spring burn and they've already emerged, I just wiped them out. Mm-hmm. And they can't even fill in. So now I've got all these pretty forbs, or maybe I burned it in, in August. And... Uh, I burned up all the adults. Well, I got all these pretty forbs the next spring and next summer, but there's nobody to live on them. You know, yeah. they're going to have to be populated from a long ways away. So, right, um, we got to think about those things, and even the reptiles. Uh, you're going to have a different suite of of lizards and snakes that are going to live in that habitat in that field as compared to the timber. Mm-hmm. Same thing. If there's no refuge for them, and you do a growing season burn, that's that's pretty hard on lizards and snakes. Yeah, because well, they've well, emerged and they're using yep. the landscape. They're using the habitat that's available for them, even if it's, especially if it's small, then they're all going to be crammed into that fairly small um, unit. Yep, and and we do that sometimes, and we know that we're going to kill um, some of those some of those species. We know that we're going. It's going to be detrimental, but. But that's when we need to do this fire for a variety of reasons. Again, every, there's always winners and losers, right? Yeah. For every action, there's a reaction. So, um, I guess, I guess to kind of the on the, the idea of scale. The bottom line, I guess, is is I th- and I think I can speak for you, Kyle. Correct me if I'm wrong. I I I tend to prefer a smaller scale, maybe 40 acres or less, 60 acres. Or less, 80 acres on our prairies, on our big some of the big prairies that I manage, 80 acre units aren't aren't uncommon. I tend to err on the side of of more and smaller units versus fewer and larger units. You just yep. you just provide more refuge. You're burning the same amount of acres potentially 
but you're doing it in a more strategic and more spread out way. Yep, and you know you spread that diversity around across the landscape too, right? So yeah. these burns typically are going to uh, generate more diversity the next growing season or two. Um, a variety of, of plant species and timber burns, we're going to have more of a, a variety of, of plants. And, and um, if we can spread that across the entire farm, instead of it's all on the west third, mm-hmm. you know, we're telling all the deer, well, if you want that plant, you got to go clear over here to the west side. Mm-hmm. Or quail, if you want this, you got to go clear over there. You know, if we can spread that around, it's always better. They, right. they have this diversity of structure and food resources across the entire property. That's um, right. And, and you're not forcing animals to go somewhere that maybe they don't want to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I think I think that wraps up a lot of the, the fire effect stuff and, yeah. and, and timing. Um, I don't have a whole lot more, I don't guess. I, no, there's, fire is one of those things that, that, that it takes... Um, it, it takes a quite, a, quite a lot of experience and, and research to understand the full effects. It's, it doesn't take anything to go out and set a fire. But just setting a fire to set a fire is not what we're after. Because it could be going 180 against what you're trying to achieve. It's best to err on the side of not burning something and learning more about it than to just go out there and say, I'm going to burn off this field. Because you may be doing more harm than good. So... Do things like listen to the podcast. Do things like doing some research, doing doing some um, online looking about what you know the best time fire timing is for 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 your conditions, or give us a shout. You know, you bet. We can be glad yep. to provide that service here in Missouri. You know, the conservation department puts on uh, private land burn workshops all around the state, and and a lot of hopefully in your state those those opportunities exist. Yeah. Whether it's state agency, a federal agency, um, there's some there's some opportunities out yeah. there. There's sometimes there's cost share for the different agencies will help pay you to burn you right. can hire a burn contractor absolutely and get reimbursed for 50 or 75 percent of the cost of of doing those burns so there there's a lot of different resources out there yes fire is i mean combined i don't know how many tens of thousands i think i've burned bossed easily fifty thousand acres yeah, or I'm more not, in my career probably, I, I'm, I'm probably at 20 i, I yeah we 20, we've 30, done it a lot like and it, it's still you know, we got to be careful. We got to be smart about how we do it. We pick the right days. You know, as a landowner, I'll tell you right now, you probably never want to be burning if the humidity is below 50%. That's the the humidity is the thing most people don't understand. Yes. They know the wind is going to cause a raging fire. They don't understand the humidity. Humidity will get you. We're not going to go Absolutely. into all the details of how to burn and how to how to complete a burn, but just if you take anything out of this, know that burning below 50 you better know what you're doing and, mm-hmm. and you better have and, and we'll burn clear down to 25 percent but we've got trained crews and and it's a whole different story so um anyway um i think we're going to wrap it up um if if you want more information or you know some burn advice or some land management advice whether it's quail deer turkeys you name it prairie chickens um you guys know info at landandlegacy.tv. Yep. That's us, our contact. Yeah. Give us give, a shout. Give Matt, us a shout. Adam, Frank, Kyle, any of us, we'd be glad to help you out. And Absolutely. We a- could we answer could questions. You bet. We can assist with burn plan writing. We can assist with, with planning your property to, to break out burn units to, to best achieve your goals. We could 
we can help you with all facets of that and, and get you well on your way to managing your property to the to its fullest potential using one of the best tools out there that, that we have to, to get that done. Yep. With that, we'll see you later. See you.